Welcome to the Student of the Game podcast, where we break down the lives, strategies, and advice of successful individuals who are students of their own game and masters of their own craft. My name is Tim Stone. My co-hosts are Nick Galbraith and Ian Cushing. Let's get ready to learn and grow. Hey, this is Nick and Tim, the hosts of the UTC Real Estate Club podcast, and we have an amazing guest for you today, Jeff Hulse. Really appreciate you joining us today, Jeff. Yeah, you're welcome, guys. Although I don't know about the amazing part. I am here. <laughs> well, your story is at least amazing. <laughs> also, don't know about that, <laughs> but if you say so. Yeah, so uh, let's go ahead and get started. The way we like to start it is go from everything before college up to college, and then we'll sort of regroup at that point. So if you okay. want to tell your life story up to college. Uh, all right. So I was born in a hospital. Okay. I don't remember that, though. <laughs> no. Uh, listen, I um, before college... Uh, my life was the same as most people's life, right? You know, I was a kid, I grew up, I, I lived in West Michigan, so uh, Grand Rapids area. Um, my dad was a lawyer, my mom was a school teacher, but she was basically a stay-at-home mom. Uh, my mom ran some small businesses for my dad as well, so we had an ice cream store when I was like 12 or 13 years old with a miniature golf course, and so we did that. So I'm really great at miniature golf, and also fat. So that's that's what happens when you own a ice cream store or miniature golf course when you're a child. And then we had a Yogi Bear campground. I don't know if you guys remember those or not. We had that for a couple of years while I was a young teenager. And I got to dress up like Boo Boo Bear, you know, like walk around and like sweat because it's super hot in a bear costume. And then um, from there, I... Uh, and I went to high school, and I was kind of actually a weirdo. I, I would sneak out of my bedroom late at night and watch, like, um, late-night television. And by that, I mean, like, real estate infomercials. <laughs> like, how to buy real estate with no money down. Because uh, that's the kind of weird kid I was. And uh, my dad had some rentals, so I had a little exposure to it. But, uh, yeah, that's about what I did before college. Went to high school. Was on the swim team. That kind of stuff. Yeah. So what, what did you go to college for? Uh, well, I went to community college for two years. And um, uh, three, actually, because I'm an overachiever. You know, that's what you do. You go to a two-year program in three years. And I didn't have any clue what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to go to college. That was it. Uh, so I did that. And um, I was sitting in a, um, I was sitting in, a, in like a history class. I think it was re modern renaissance whatever, Western European history or something like that, right? So uh, I was in this history class, and the professor was talking about uh, this particular sculpture um, by Michelangelo called the Moses. I don't know if you guys ever heard of that or not, but um, the Moses is like a seated sculpture with, um, he's got the horns of truth, and he's got this like long flowing beard and stuff. And um, the professor was talking about how when Moses, when this sculpture was unveiled, uh, and it was actually the centerpiece of the Pope's tomb, so it was kind of a big deal, right? The Pope was like, you know, the president of the world or something. Like, it wasn't <laughs> like, you know, it was like more than our president, right? Like, he was super powerful and, like, essentially was the most important person alive at the time. And Michelangelo stood in front of the Pope and just stared at this, this sculpture, and he didn't say anything. He just stared at it. He's just like, you know... And finally, one of his students was like, you know, master, you have to say something because, you know, they're revealing this 
sculpture to the Pope, and he takes his chisel and he throws it at the Moses and he screams a single word, right? A single word, the word move. Because he was so, so convinced that this was like the greatest sculpture he had ever done that he expected it to just get up and move. And I thought to myself, like, God, like, there's nothing in my life I'm that passionate about that I would stand in front of the president of the world and go crazy. <laughs> so I'm doing something wrong. Uh, so I immediately dropped off school. <laughs> That's what I did. I, was, I didn't drop out that minute, but I, I literally finished my semester, which was the finishing my associate's degree. And instead of enrolling in a, you know, an, an, another undergrad university and finishing my schooling, I said, I'm going to take the little bit of money I have for my tax refund because I got like a hope tax refund credit or something like that. I said, I'm going to take that little bit of money I have and I'm going to go to Europe. I'm going to see the Moses, and then I will know what I want to do with my life. Um, so the Moses is in this little tiny church. It's on a hill above the Colosseum in Rome. And um, I called up 1-800-PRICELINE because I'm old, and this is before the Internet was like a thing. I mean, it existed, but we didn't have like Priceline.com or Expedia or you know Google Flights or any of that kind of fun stuff we have now. Mm -hmm. So I called up 1-800-PRICELINE, and I was like, hey, um, uh, I want to fly to London. And I got a ticket to London for like $300. Now, London's not exactly Rome, but I was like, if I'm going to go to Europe, I might as well make an adventure out of it. So I bought a backpack. And this is, by the way, I'd never been outside of the U.S. except for a little bit of Canada. Um, and I'm 21 years old. And I just bought a backpack and a plane ticket and hopped on the plane and went to Europe and said, I want to figure out how to get to Rome and see the Moses. <laughs> so I just did that. I just wandered around and, and, you know, I got some train passes and I went down to um, Spain and then I went over to Paris and Belgium and then finally down to, to Rome uh, and, and saw the Moses. So that, that's kind of like, um, that was my strategy, right? So I, I arrive in Rome uh, and I made a friend that was traveling with me. I met him on the ferry back from England to France. And, uh, and I told him about the Moses and how that my whole purpose of going to Europe was to see this sculpture and it was going to solve everything. You know, I was going to learn what I wanted to do with my life and all this stuff. And I, I uh, wandered around Rome, went to the Vatican and went to the Colosseum. And finally, I climbed the hill up to this church. It's called the Saint, San Pedro in Vincole or, or something like that. My Italian is zero. That's about as much Italian as I know. Ciao. <laughs> right? That's about it. Uh, so anyway, so I climb the stairs up to the church and um, I walk into the church. And this is a small church. I mean, honestly, it's probably like, t you know, like 4,000 square feet total. So for, for a uh, medieval cathedral, it's very small. And um, I'm looking around and I don't see the Moses in this church. And they have, um, they have like a really old box with some chains in it. It's because St. Pedro in, in Vincole actually means St. Peter in chains. And so they have like these chains that were supposedly the chains that the angels released Peter from. Uh, so, you know, there's just Catholic relics everywhere and there's like a piece of the true cross. I don't think that's actually there, but it was stuff like that, right? Uh, but, but no Moses. And finally I see in the corner like this like dark shadowy spot and I'm like, well, it's got to be over there. There's nowhere else in the hole place to go so I wander over there and you can't even really see the thing and I realized that if you uh, drop a coin into this machine it will light the thing up so I'm like oh, okay so I find a uh, at the time it was Italian lira but now it would be probably euros or something or maybe 
the lights are on all the time. Who knows, right? So I put in this coin, and it lights up, and it's like, you know, I'm, like, thinking this is, like, a moment out of the movies. Like, this is going to be the moment that changes everything. And I'm like, eh, eh. It's just okay. It's just not that big a deal. I mean, it's a great sculpture, and, you know, you should go see it if you get a chance. So you guys should definitely go see the sculpture. But, um, but it was just, I mean, it, it didn't solve everything. Because it turns out that going on a quest to see a sculpture is not going to solve everything in your life. It's not going to help you figure out what you want to do. So I walked out of the church and I was kind of like, okay, now what? I'm almost out of money, <laughs> like literally almost out of money. And I don't have a college degree other than my associate's degree. And I don't know what I want to do with my life. And I sit down on the front steps of the church and I look down at the Coliseum and I think, I like seeing old stuff. I should go to see some more old stuff. So I start thinking like, well, what else is old? Like what's older than the Coliseum? Like what's the first thing that comes to mind for you guys that's older than the Coliseum? The planet. Well, sure, the planet, but I was already there. What about you? Um, you know, the only thing coming to my mind right now is uh, me and Sarah watching a television show on Netflix called Alone. Yeah. And on the island in, I believe it was the Arctic, they had this slab of stone. I can't remember the stone's name that's been, it's like the oldest. Um, okay, so oldest rock, other than like geological features yeah. it's hard to think of things that are older than than the Colosseum but there are things right so like the pyramids for example are significantly mm -hmm. older and I thought you guys would come up that's, with that apparently college has gone downhill <laughs> since I was in college <laughs> maybe you're not history majors what can I say right so so I thought okay the pyramids are really old so I'd like to see those and then I went well, you know actually I kind of like old like ruiny stuff so maybe I'll go see uh, Machu Picchu which is not as old as the Colosseum but this is an Incan city on top of the mountains in Peru and then I'll go see Petra and Jordan so I just made this like little mental bucket list yeah. and I went okay now how am I going to get the money to go see those things because it's not free to do that uh, and I was like well my dad's a lawyer I'll just be a lawyer and then I'll make money and I'll use the money to go see these old things and that's so that's pretty much my college career in a nutshell I uh, went back to college after I got back from Europe uh, and I did two years undergrad at a state school then I went to get an MBA and then I went to law school and uh, then I became a lawyer and I went to Egypt and head <laughs> to Jordan and Machu Picchu so that's pretty much it well there's my whole life in a nutshell <laughs> <laughs> now how did that kind of transform into real estate um well well what kind of lawyer were you and how did that how was that process and how did that kind of yeah um, so uh, I started out as a general practitioner, so I did whatever came in the door, okay. but I really focused on bankruptcy. That was the thing I did the most of. Um, and this is 2000, I mean, I graduated from law school in 2007, so like it's a good time to start being a bankruptcy attorney, 2008, 2009, 2010. There was a lot of bankruptcy work, and this is up in Michigan. And uh, um, it would have been fine. I had a television commercial. I hired another lawyer to work for me. Um, and then I went to Machu Picchu, uh, and this is August of 2008. I know that for sure because that was the last thing on the list. I went to Egypt when I was an undergrad, actually, oh, wow. and I went to Petra uh, with my wife after I graduated from law school. And so then the next year, uh, I said, well, we got to go to Machu Picchu now. We have the money. We can go. And everything was going really well. And I went up to Machu Picchu, and I was feeling not great. I felt altitude sickness, out of shape. I couldn't breathe. 
um, I thought there's something wrong. Uh, you know, I was like, at least I quit smoking. Like it could have been worse. Right. But I just like, didn't feel great. And I came off the mountain. I mean, it's an amazing experience. I mean, people should go there, came off the mountain and I checked my voicemail. Cause you had to like, back then we didn't have international cell coverage. We had cell phones finally, but we didn't have cell coverage. So I, I called on a pay phone to check my voicemail. And the one attorney that worked for me had put in his two-week notice like three days before that. And I wasn't going to be home for like another six, seven days. So I was going to have like four days to replace him, right? And I thought, well, that's inconvenient. I'm going to have to deal with that when I get home. <laughs> and, then, um, and then, you know, we did the rest of our trip and I flew home and I just, I was feeling so crappy, like really, really bad. So I went to the med center. I didn't even have a doctor. I just went to the med center. And they were like, oh, you must have picked something up in the Amazon. So they gave me antibiotics didn't help two days go by not by the way this two days put me thursday to saturday that saturday was the last day of his two-week notice so my you know, other attorney is done working i'm sick um and that saturday i'm still sick so i go back to the med center and they do some blood work and uh they say well we'll, we'll let you know when we find something out and they say, just keep taking your antibiotics you'll probably get better i said okay but i feel really bad i mean i developed a weird lump on my stomach wow. and i thought i had picked up a parasite or something in the amazon <laughs> and i'm like coughing and i can't breathe I'm a, i like legitimately had pneumonia they knew that for sure um but i just i felt like there was something else wrong my vision was getting blurry i mean it was like it wasn't great um but i went home and and you know i started watching heroes on television i don't know if you guys remember that show or not but it's a dumb show, but uh, it was a big show in 2008. Yeah. No one cares about it now. So I'm watching the show, and uh, I get a phone call. Uh, well, actually, my wife got a phone call. It was like 10 o'clock at night, and uh, they asked to speak to me, and, um, and I'm like, okay. And I get the phone, and it's the doctor, and they've got my test results, and they said, listen, there's no easy way to tell you this, but um, you have leukemia, and you need to go to the hospital right now wow yeah what was running through your mind when you received that phone call i want to watch the rest of the episode of heroes <laughs> <laughs> so my wife says to me she goes she goes uh, uh what they want i go oh let's just watch there's five minutes left in the episode i'm like let's just watch the rest of the episode you know but the problem is the doctor made me say uh you have to repeat what i said because they they figured i was in shock which i obviously was and he said you know do you understand what i'm saying and i said yeah and he goes well what did i say and i go you said i have to come to the hospital right now and he's like yeah you do which hospital are you coming to and i told him and he goes okay we're gonna call ahead and make sure they're waiting for you and so i knew it was serious right because yeah. <laughs> like that's not a normal conversation <laughs> and of course my wife heard me say i have to go to the hospital right now and what hospital to go to so she's like, what did they say? And I'm like, let's just watch the rest of the show. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to see the end of this episode for a long time. I just think it's going to be bad. <laughs> and uh, so then I'm like, okay. I'm like, listen, I, I said that, you know, for the first time ever. I said, you know, these words out loud. I said, I have leukemia and we have to go to the hospital. And then she starts crying and freaking out like you do when you find out someone you love is sick. And I'm like, well, that's not working. I can't drive. I got to go to the hospital. And she can't drive because she's freaking out. So I called her dad. And I knew he was up because the weird part is, like, apparently my emergency contact was her dad and not her phone. So he, they had gotten her number from him. And my phone was dead. That's why they were calling him. So I call him and I'm like, hey, uh, dad, 
like, can you come over to the house a minute? And he, they live like three miles from us back then. And he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, eh, just come on over. We need, we, we, I need you to come over here. <laughs> Cause I know if I tell him he's going to yeah. freak out. So he gets over and then, um, of course he sees his daughter still crying and freaking out. And I'm like, he's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I'm like, okay, promise me that you can keep yourself together. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like, I need to go to the hospital right now and I need you to drive us. And he's like, okay, why? And so then I go through this whole thing again and predictably he freaks out so like we go through this whole process finally we get he's calm enough we we spend a little time uh centering ourselves and praying and things like that and then we uh, got in the car and left and um and then i did the dumbest thing i've ever done in my entire life and that is call every single person i can think of and tell them this hey mom I don't really know anything, but I'm on the way to the hospital. I have leukemia. I'll let you know more later. Bye. <laughs> hey, Dad. <laughs> hey, Bob, my brother. You know, I'd be like, I'm calling everybody. For like 20-minute drive to the hospital, I think I made like 17 calls. <laughs> right? Just ran. And I'm like not even telling him anything. I get my brother's voicemail. I'm like, hey, Bob, like I'm on the way to the hospital. I have leukemia. I'm going to this hospital. I'll let you know something later. Bye. Like that's the voicemail. <laughs> You know, wow. like, don't do that. If you get leukemia, don't tell anybody until you know something. Bad idea. So I get to the hospital, and uh, predictably, all of the people I call thought I only called them. So they all start showing up, right? So I'm in the, like, I don't even have a room in the hospital. I'm in, the, like, like a little tented, like, emergency room, like, triage center. And then my mom shows up, and my dad shows up, and my brother shows up, and my sister shows up, and my cousin shows up, and my friend shows up, and my brother's friend shows up. Like, just, like, random. There's, like, 20 people in this little time. I mean, it's, like, literally about the space that we're in right now. And, uh, um, and my brother says to me, he says, uh, Why'd you call everyone? <laughs> I, go, I don't know. <laughs> I just figured I'd tell a lot of people. I figured you want to know. But you could have stayed at the wedding you were at because he was at a wedding. And he goes, eh, you know, I figured you're having a bad day. And I was like, it's not a bad day. I don't have bad days because that's what I do. So that's, that's it. That's, that's what happened after college. And that's how I ended up getting out of law. This is a super long answer to your question, by the way. But, but the reality is it really is because I had two attorneys and then I lost one and then I lost another myself. I couldn't work. And the practice was in shambles by the time I got back to work. We were losing five or $6,000 a week for months and we had tons of debt piled up and I became the cliched bankruptcy attorney who ended up bankrupt because of it because I didn't have any income coming in at all. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's how I got out of law. And that's okay. what I did. And, that, and you were still in Michigan at the time. I was, yeah. So this is 2008. I was able to get all of my existing clients taken care of. Uh, and by 2010, um, I just had a pile of debt, but I was caught up on everything. And I was looking at the future, and the economy was very uncertain then. And I got a job offer, and I had hundreds of thousands of dollars in business debt, like a lot of business debt. And I said... I'm never going to pay this off. Like, it's not going to happen. Like, I'm, I'm not making money. No one has any money to hire an attorney right now because the economy's terrible. And uh, even though I was current on my mortgage and my credit cards, I owed, like, the minimum payments were thousands of dollars a month, right? <laughs> like, it was getting bad. 
And uh, so I, I had no choice. And I just said, oh, I guess I'm done. And the thing is, when you're a bankruptcy attorney and you file bankruptcy, there's, there's no law that says you have to quit practicing law. But kind of feels like it <laughs> you know yeah. like you go in front of people that you work with um that you literally have been in front of hundreds of times in your professional capacity and go uh, <laughs> out of money <laughs> see ya and i just took a job down in chattanooga and that's how i ended up down here um i do want to circle back on one thing though if okay. it's all right with yeah, you absolutely. so i said this thing about my brother in the emergency room going like like I figured you're having a bad day and I kind of went like, no, I don't have bad days. Right. Cause that's sort of my thing. So say like 13 years before that, when I was 17, I, uh, made a decision to give up bad days. I just, one day I just went, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have bad days anymore. It didn't actually work by the way, just to be clear, it turns out you don't get to just go, oh, I'm not going to have bad days anymore. And that solves it. But it, it actually does in a way. Um, uh, we were. I was doing positive affirmations back then. I would say today's a good day. Today's a good day. Today's a good day. Over and over again. I didn't know it was called a positive affirmation because like YouTube didn't exist. I mean, literally didn't exist. That like, Google hadn't even been founded yet then, so I didn't have any way to know what this was. But it's just what I said. I said, "Look, I'm uh, 17. I'm healthy. Uh, I live in America. Like it can't be that bad. <laughs> like I'm just gonna. I, I'm just gonna have a good day." And I kept saying that over and over again. And I just believed that if I convinced myself I was having a good day, uh, I would. And if you think about this objectively. Somewhere in the world today, someone's having the worst day they've ever had. But somewhere else in the world, someone's having the best day they ever had. So the day really isn't good or bad. It's really like a subjective interpretation of how your day is going that determines whether it's good or bad. So the idea that you can convince yourself you're having a good day is actually exactly accurate. If you can get your subconscious mind to believe it's a good day, for you, it actually is a good day. And uh, I think what my brother was saying that day in the hospital was, like, you just got diagnosed with leukemia. Like, nice try, buddy. You can't always have good days. And I was literally thinking, like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't get diagnosed till 10 o'clock at night. Like, 22 hours of the day were actually pretty good. <laughs> like, I wasn't feeling 100%, but I got to watch Heroes, right? So it could have been worse. And then I'm in the hospital, and all these people are showing up, and they obviously care about me. That's why they're there. And I was like, I feel loved right now. So this is a good day. Yes, I would rather not have leukemia, um, but it's not, not that bad. Like, it could be worse. I could be dead. I mean, my, my wife could have leukemia. That would have been worse for me. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but, but you know, when you feel that way, that's what you feel. And uh, so that day wasn't too bad. And the next day was actually a much harder day. Um, because, you know, then I knew I had leukemia the whole day. And then eventually my people went home. You know, they weren't all there. And I had this time by myself. And I was like, ooh, <laughs> got to get used to this. Yeah. I've got leukemia and I'm probably going to die because that's the other thing. Like, my dad came into the hospital that first night and he said, if you live till February, um, I'll take you to Australia. And by the way, this is in September, right? So this is not like a long period of time. And I was like... I just hope I make it till Christmas because I didn't know anything about how leukemia worked except for like your white blood cells are supposed to be like between four and 10,000 yeah. and mine were um, 258,000. 
Wow. I had a cousin, uh, Kimberly, who died a few years before I was diagnosed with leukemia, of leukemia. And when she died, her white blood cell count was 150,000. So I was like double as bad as her. <laughs> and this is why I felt like crap, frankly. Um, and, uh, and so I just assumed I was going to die. I mean, no one told me that. There wasn't like a doctor that said, like, you have no chance you're going to die. But like for four days, every nurse, every doctor I saw treated me like I was on the way out. They didn't say it, but you, you could tell by the way they were acting. Um, and I know this because the next day when I was sitting there by myself in the hospital, there was a shift change around two in the afternoon. And this new nurse came in. And she looked at me and she said, oh my God, Jeff, I'm so sorry that you're here. And I was like, oh my God, Shelly, I'm so happy I'm here because this was like a babysitter of mine I hadn't seen in 20 years, right? And I was like, literally like excited by it. And she was like, you are insane. You should be upset about this. And I'm like, no, it's so great to see you. And that was enough to like shift that day for me into a good day. And, and, you know, the next day something else positive happened. And the thing is, this, that's how it works. Good stuff happens to everyone every day. Bad stuff happens to everyone every day. Some days more bad stuff happens than good stuff, right? And a lot of people will say, well, that's a bad day. And my argument is, no, it's still your perspective that matters. So, so for me, seeing Shelly was enough to outweigh leukemia. And you might say, well, listen, leukemia is really bad, right? Um, and, and, and seeing your old babysitters, yeah, it's nice, but it's not as good relative to really bad. But the thing is, it's not how it felt at the time, and that's really what matters. So if you're going to give up bad days, you just you, it's what your subjective opinion that matters. And when I look back at it, I was right, because that probably was the best day of my life, like objectively the best day of my life, because that's when I went, I don't really like being a lawyer. I'm just doing this so I can make money to travel. I need to find something else out to do. And I, I set myself on a course that ended up in Chattanooga, that ended up um, in a situation where I don't have to work at all and I have time freedom. I ended up in a situation where a former guest of yours said that they want to be like me, right? Like, like Eddie Bodkin, I saw him on your show and I was like, you're insane, Eddie. Like you shouldn't want to be me. Like that means you have leukemia and you know, you, you might die, but like, Hey, it's been a decade. I'm still here. So it could be worse. Yeah. So there's a thing I actually heard this morning. Uh, I want to say Bradley said it, but it sort of goes with sure. the no bad days thing. He said, if someone offered you, or would you accept a million dollars if you knew you wouldn't wake up tomorrow? Yeah, the answer is absolutely not. Yeah, right? and then would you accept ten million, a hundred million, a billion dollars if you knew you mm, were going to? You wake see, up? I love that. Yeah. Bradley's an interesting character. Yeah. So, and, but but that's exactly waking right. up is worth way more than a billion dollars yeah, to you. You can't buy time. Alive. You yeah. cannot buy time, and that's the best part about real estate investing. Actually, is you actually can buy your time back. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you don't get new time. But you can stop spending your time going to work. You can stop spending your time doing things that you don't love to do. And you can have the freedom. And that's really what Eddie was talking about, right? Is he wants to be able to take off and go to Puerto Rico for a month like I did a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or go to Europe uh, for a month. Or go to Africa for a month like I did in 2020 when I climbed Kilimanjaro. Like, that was an expensive trip. I mean, I'm going to Antarctica for crying out loud, like next year in January, I'm literally going to Antarctica. Like who goes to Antarctica, right? Yeah. I do because I yeah. want to. And, uh, 
and, and you know, I saw all those things that I saw before, but I was like trying to fit them in in between like, you know, cases and like jobs and stuff. When I went to you know, Peru, it was like I had to be stressed about what was happening at work. And now if I want to go to Peru, I don't go like, oh, I'm going to go for eight days and like squeeze in everything I want to see in Peru like we did then. I'd be like, I think I'll spend a month and a half in South Africa or South America. And, you know, while I'm there, I'll go to Peru and Bolivia and wherever else I want to go. Um, no, I still have to do some work. I don't, I don't want to imply that I don't do anything. But, mm-hmm. but the reality is I have a way more flexibility. I can run my business from anywhere. If I don't want to do anything for a week or two or three, it's, it's fine. Business mm-hmm. will still be there when I get back. Absolutely. And I think it's so powerful, Jeff, when you talked about practicing positive affirmations and just stacking gratitude and getting yourself out of that really down point yeah. in your life and taking it to where you are today. Yeah. And just, you know... 25 years, man. Really reflecting gratitude to everyone you speak with, the people listening to this right now. I think it's so powerful. Yeah, 25 years without a bad day. And it literally started by just one day. I was feeling sad. I broke up with my girlfriend when I was 17 or whatever. And and I just went, this is dumb. I shouldn't be sad. Like, I I should just be happy. And then what happens is there's this thing that Tony Robbins talks about all the time, the reticular activating system. Um, And there's this thing called the Bader-Meinhof effect. They're essentially the same thing, but it's basically like when you buy a new car, all of a sudden it seems like everyone has that car. Or if you're thinking about buying a Tesla, now you see Teslas everywhere, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, It's not that there's more than there were before. It's that your subconscious mind defaults to what you're familiar with. So my subconscious mind, it defaults to positive. Like you punch me in the face, I'll be like, cool, I got a new story. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's what I'm gonna be like. Let me tell you about the time I was on a podcast and the guy just hauled off and punched me in the face. <laughs> you know, that makes some golden material for the future. And so, like, uh, earlier this year, I got diagnosed with melanoma. Like, that's bad luck. Two cancers. Like, you don't want two cancers. Like, one's bad, but you can beat one. But, like, I don't know very many people that have multiple cancers and stick around. I'm hoping I can do it. But, <laughs> but, but you know what I thought to myself? this is going to be awesome. I'm going to tell those guys at UTC about it on a podcast and I'm going to be like, you want to see the scar? <laughs> like where they cut the cancer cells out? <laughs> because the reality is like, like we're all going to have this stuff happen. So, you know, whatever bad happens to you, you know, you break up with your girlfriend, you get cancer, you know, you lose your arm. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's, it's, it sucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but like, it's so you guys know Hal Elrod, the Miracle Morning guy. Yeah. So so Hal Elrod writes this book, Miracle Morning. It's a great book. People should read it. But there's also like this quote that I love that he says, and he says, "The moment you accept 100% responsibility for everything in your life is the moment you can change anything in your life." Wow. So I think that's like that. That's the secret, right? Like I could have gone oh man this is so unfair I have leukemia like woe is me oh man this is terrible or I can be like I gotta take responsibility for where I am it's like when you're dealt a bad hand in poker you don't go this is unfair I mean you might be irritated by it and I was irritated I'd rather not have leukemia don't get me wrong I'd rather not have melanoma I don't now we cut it out but but I'd rather not get it again right if I get it again I'll be pissed but I also will be like what do I got to do to fix this, right? Like, what, what can I do? So when I got leukemia, I asked my doctor, I said, hey, doc, like, if you were 30 and had this exact type of leukemia, it's, the type I have is rare. Uh, it's less rare now, um, but it was 
pretty rare then, uh, and it's particularly rare in people under 50, and I was 30, right? So 43 now, so 13 years. Um, and the five-year survival rate was like 5%. And I said, listen, if you've got this exact cancer and you're 30 years old, who, what doctor would you talk to? Because I want a second opinion. <laughs> right? I go, nothing against you, but like, who would you go to if you were in my exact situation? He goes, oh, there's a lot of good doctors. I said, no, 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 no. Who would you go to? <laughs> like, who would you go to? And he goes, well, if I could go anywhere. I go, yeah, that's the one I want, anywhere. <laughs> he goes, well, if I could go anywhere, I would go to MD Anderson and talk to this particular doctor, Susan O'Brien, who's the leading clinical researcher for the type of treatment that I'm recommending to you, and she's the expert on this disease. And I go, okay, I'm going to go see her. And he goes, I don't think she's taking new patients. I'm like, I'm going to go see her. <laughs> you know. And you know what I did? I went and saw her. <laughs> and you know what she told me? Oh, your doctor's doing exactly what I would do. And I go, oh, that was a waste of time. But the thing is, the thing is, the point is I took responsibility for it. I said, you know what? Like, it doesn't matter what, whether it's my fault because that's different than responsibility. And I didn't even, I mean, I didn't know who Hal Elrod was then, let alone know that quote, but, but the reaction's the same. You're dealt whatever you're dealt. Like, take responsibility and do whatever the best thing you can possibly do in the situation you're in. Yeah. You'd be so much happier if you focus on the things that you can change. Yeah. Only, if you only focus on the things you can change. Buddha says that, actually. So I'm not a Buddhist, but, but there's this quote I like from Buddha, and I, I'm going to butcher it, but like the, this, the general idea of it is that it's, it's about worrying, but it applies to this as well. It's like um, you shouldn't worry because if whatever you're worrying about, if it's something that you cannot change, there's no point in worrying. And if it's something you can change, you should just go change it. Go change it. it. Right? Like, those are your options. Like, like if you can't change it, just don't, don't worry about it because it doesn't do any good, right? It's going to either happen or it's not. And if you, then that's how leukemia is. Like, if you get leukemia, don't, like, sit around and be like, oh, man, that, that's, that, I'm going to worry. I might get leukemia. Like, don't worry if you're going to get leukemia because you either are or you aren't. But, but if you know that, like, smoking increases your chance of getting lung cancer and you've got, like, family members that have lung cancer so you've got a medical history for it, like, like, you shouldn't worry about getting lung cancer. You should just quit smoking. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's not that complicated. And you can apply that to almost anything in life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I absolutely love the conversation that we're having right now. But I guess switching back over to you getting start, started sure. into real estate, um, I guess just kind of take us to your first deal and kind of how that process was and what struggles. Yeah, so I moved down here um, in uh, December of 2010. In uh, like May of 2011, I had no credit and very little money because I just came out of a bankruptcy. <laughs> and but I had gotten a pretty good job. Um, that's one value of having education. So I got I got a good job working for in transportation, and uh, part of that I got a, a signing bonus. So I had a little bit of cash. And this the real estate market was dicey in 2011. I mean, you guys are a little young to remember that, but it was, it was dicey. And uh, there was this condo uh, in Rochester, Michigan, which is over by Detroit, but it's like a rich suburb of Detroit, that was a bank-owned foreclosure, and um, I think it was, uh, like, the mortgage on the foreclosure was, like, 110000 and the bank was selling it for uh, 35000 right? So it was, like, 
the previously they thought it was worth enough to put a hundred and five thousand dollar mortgage on, and now a few years later they're selling it for thirty, right, thirty five. And so my partner Travis uh, called me up and he because I'd been telling him, hey, I've got like a little bit of money saved up, like twenty thousand dollars. Like let's find something to buy together. He had some other real estate and stuff. This is a guy I knew from law school, and he said, I got this I, this bank owned condo we can buy for thirty thousand. I've talked him down to thirty thousand, and I think it's a really good investment. And I go, okay. Let's do it. So we each put in uh, $17,500 because we need to do a light renovation on it. Uh, and then, remember, I had, I literally had like $19,800 to my name. <laughs> and, and I owed 100000 in student loans, so I was actually negative 80000 in net worth. And I'm like, hey, uh, Becky, that's my wife. I go, hey, Becky, like, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to take all of our money and I'm going to buy this condo in Detroit. And, you know, when you grow up in West Michigan, like we do, uh, did, um, Detroit is like, it's like, it's like saying, I'm going to go buy a condo in Memphis. You're like, no, don't do that. That's a bad idea, right? If you grew up in Chattanooga, you're like, I don't want to even go to Memphis, right? That's what it was like. And, um, you know, so we're looking at that and, 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 and I said, well, you know, Travis wants to do it. And she goes, oh, Travis is involved. I go, yeah. She goes, all right, let's do it. She doesn't care after that because she trusts <laughs> Travis. Uh, but she did say this. She said, if, if this deal doesn't work out, um, we're never investing in real estate again because we can't afford to lose money again. So this is one time. You better make sure it works out. And uh, fortunately, it worked out. So that's where I'm at. So we bought it for cash and we rented it out for like $700. I think it was like $600 a month back then. Uh, but, you know, we didn't know anything on it. And condo fee was like $150. So it cash flowed right out of the gate. And uh, and uh, we were off to the races. Awesome. So how long did it take to go from the, the condo single family into multifamily? Was it a pretty quick transition? No, no. That was 2011. No. I bought my first multifamily. Uh, but other than like a couple of duplexes here and there, I bought my first multifamily in 2017. Oh, after okay. I quit working, yeah. So I we bought like about fifty single family uh, residences uh, between two thousand and eleven and two thousand seventeen. The company I worked for was selling out to a bigger company, and they offered me a job or severance. I was like, I don't want to work for a big company. I don't even really want to work for anybody, right? Like I was back back to the freedom thing. Like the whole reason I was moving here was so I could make more money temporarily and divert money to real estate so that I could get out of having to work for someone else. And so, well, I wasn't quite ready for that. Um, I was thinking, hey, six months severance, that sounds pretty good. I'll take that and I'll figure it out. And uh, I took my severance check and I bought a duplex <laughs> and we did a burr on it. And I took the money from that and I pulled it with some money my dad had and we went and bought a 12 unit. Uh, so October of 17, about four months after I quit working was when we bought the first multifamily. Um, the second one was a 19 unit that we bought uh, in November of 17. That one, um, we sold some houses that we had and we 1031 over to that. And that was with my partner, Travis. And it was because I was like, we should buy multifamily. And he's like, ah, maybe, I don't know. And I'm like, well, I'm doing it anyway. So I bought the 12 unit. And then I think when I put that under contract, he was like, wait a minute, you can't buy a 12 unit. I can buy a 19 unit. Let's go buy this. Like, <laughs> it was like competitive, right? Which was great for me because then it's like, I'm getting both. <laughs> so I ended up with a third of, of each because we had another partner up on the other one. My dad had two thirds of this one because I didn't have enough money to do the 12 unit. And we actually just sold it. So like the 12 unit, the first one I ever bought, uh, we paid 635,000 for it. We sold it uh, this summer for 1,150,000. So I mean, we never put any more money in it. I mean, we, we put a little bit in, but like only out of cash flows. 
and so we did pretty well. And we 1031ing that into a uh, uh, thirty thousand square foot uh, retail shopping center in Eastridge. So that's awesome. Yeah, pretty fun. Yeah. So that's where my severance is. It's a thirty thousand square foot. <laughs> <laughs> that's another thing about investing is it's crazy how that if you trace it, like how fast it can add up. Yeah. So. You mentioned that you pretty much had a piece of every deal and you had a bunch of partners involved. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions we wanted to ask was, what are some of the good traits of a good business partner, a good long-term business partner? Yeah, they need to own a property management company. That's my yeah. number one requirement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm joking, but uh, it's also true. Uh, my primary partners uh, both own property management companies. I have one partner here, Brian, who's on my show, the Old Fashioned Real Estate Show. He owns First Property Management in Chattanooga here, and uh, um, and I partner with him on stuff here. And then Travis owns a management company called Coast to Coast Management in Detroit, and, and I partner with him there. And I don't buy anything unless I'm partnering with one of them. So everything I've ever done has been a partnership. Now, I told you guys right beforehand that I have a duplex under contract. And I was going to buy that myself. That's actually why I put it under contract. And I went, eh, I should probably find someone to partner with. So I'm bringing in a friend of mine. And it's, he does not own a property management company. So for the first time in history, I'll have a partner that doesn't have a property management company. Yeah, awesome. Um, what, I, I guess, what, um, I guess, standards and values do you like to um, have with your partners going in investments? Yeah, so, so listen, I mean... Um, we have two different levels of partners. So I have my yeah. primary partners, uh, Travis and Brian, who uh, are both you know people that I've known a long time that I have really good relationships with and I trust implicitly. And have they have we have different skill sets. So that's another thing that's important. Like I um, am better at like creative deal structures and things like that. Uh, I think than either of them, but they're much better at the operational stuff than I am. Right. So so when we combine those two skill sets, it really helps um but then we have other partners that are like sort of uh you know so everything from like limited partners in a syndication where someone just gives us money and we give them a return uh to like um partners that partner with us so like like uh travis and i do some deals with my dad once in a while brian and i do some deals with my dad well my dad's technically a full active partner in the deal um he's He's not, he's not as involved as, as we are, right? Um, and, and he's not in every deal. Like, I, 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 I do a lot more deals with Travis or Brian than I do with my dad or with, um, you know, like, some other random person. Like, we have one deal, a 16-unit building that Brian and I bought, where we brought in two people, and they each bought 10% of the deal, and we, we, we did 40% each, right? It's not actually a syndication. We're all active, yeah. but we have the majority interest in it, so we have effective control over the deal. And, um, you know, so those kind of partners, um, what I'm looking for in them is I, I, I feel it's like being married to them, like you're stuck with them long term. So they got to be easy to work with. And we have to have really clear expectations of who's doing what and when and why, you know, that kind of stuff. So one of the biggest things with this podcast is that it's educational and we have a lot of student listeners. Sure. So you mentioned syndication and that is a topic that has not come up in a podcast okay. yet. So would you mind sure. explaining what a syndication is? Um, yeah. So syndication can be really anything, but the, the, the classic definition of it is pooling money to buy something. So like technically, um, if you and I want to buy like, um, a coffee cup and, and we're going to each put in 50 cents to buy a coffee cup. That's a syndication, right? Um, but the way it's used in the real estate context is, um, 
there are very few people that have the money to buy a hundred unit apartment complex just on their own, right? So they're going to use some some selection of capital. A big chunk of it's going to be bank financing, but another part of that capital stack is going to be equity that's brought in by the investors. Well, if you don't have, you know, let's say it's a ten million dollar deal and you need two million dollars for a down payment. Well, if you only have, you know, one million, you can partner with someone and each put in a million. That's that's a traditional joint venture partnership. Um, but the other option would be to raise the money from outside investors, mm-hmm. uh, people that aren't really active, and they're called limited inv- limited partners, or um, really they're they're you know non-active investors. And when you do that, you have to be really careful because um, there's security law that basically what the um, Securities and Exchange Commission has said is that if you take money from somebody and they're investing more really in you than in the deal, they're, they're trusting that you're going to put in some effort and, make, and give them a return, then what you're really selling is a security and not real estate. Um, and what a security is, it's like a stock, right? Like technically, um, Coca-Cola is a syndication. It's a syndication of a whole bunch of people that own pieces of the company, right? And, and, and th- those syndicated investors own it collectively and there's a board of trustees or you know uh, you know whatever it is a ceo all these people that that uh that that run the company and in order for them to sell shares they have to register that with the sec and go through a whole process um and it's the same thing in real estate if you want to sell shares in a real estate company you have to register with the SEC and go through a process, but there are some exemptions to that. You also have to have a securities license to sell shares. You know, you can't just, I can't sell you shares in Nike. You have to go buy them on like an exchange from a, a, a securities broker, right? Um, but uh, uh, with real estate, there are some exceptions. And, and these apply to things outside of real estate too, but there's various rules that say, look, if you have a pre-existing relationship with, um, with your investors, uh, and they're sophisticated enough to understand what's going on, um, you can pool their money together. So like you guys, we've known each other for a while. I could say, hey, you know, Tim, Nick, like, let's go buy an apartment complex together and you guys could give me money and I could go do the work and we could make that work. But in order to make sure that that's legitimate, the SEC does still require some effort on our part. We have to file some stuff with them and give them notice and make sure you guys have had uh, adequate disclosures of the risk involved. And that's where, you know, securities attorney is really going to be important. But that's really what a syndication is. It's just pooling your money together to buy something perhaps bigger than any one of you could buy on your own. Uh, and you just got to be really careful to do it legal. So, I mean, get a securities attorney. Don't just try to do it on your own. It's not a good idea. Yeah. Thank you. I, I love when I catch a new term that hasn't come up yet, so yeah. thank you for explaining. Yeah, no problem. Awesome. Hopefully it was an adequate explanation. Now, while yeah. I am an attorney, I'm not a securities attorney, and I'm definitely not representing anyone in this room or watching the show, for that matter, because I don't practice law anymore, and I haven't since 2010. So. Yeah, important disclaimer. Yeah, might as well throw it in there. Yeah. What's the um, greatest um, lesson that you've learned investing in real estate? Uh... I mean, listen, the most important lesson I've learned is not a real estate lesson, but if you want to limit it to real estate, uh, it's just do it. Yeah. It's the Nike thing, right? <laughs> like, like um, I got this band. I, I was at an event like a couple weeks ago, um, a real estate networking event, and somebody was handing these out. It says, ready, fire, aim, right? Not ready, aim, fire. It's like ready, fire, aim. And uh, it remi- I'm wearing it because it reminds me of uh, – 
of one of my favorite quotes, even more than the Hal Elrod one, there's a Richard Branson quote where he says, the difference between successful people and those who never succeed is that successful people take action before they have all the possible information. So if I could go back in time and avoid bankruptcy, the way that I would do it would be to buy real estate when I was 19 and not when I was 30, right? And or 32 or three, whatever I was when I first bought real estate. And the thing is, I told you at the beginning that when I was 15, I would sneak out of my room and watch late night television shows about real estate. So I already knew I wanted to buy real estate when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. And I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when it came out when I was 18 or 19. Um, so I had this idea that I wanted to be a real estate investor. And I kept saying, well, I'm going to do it once I learn more, once I get out of school, once I have more money, once I do this. Um, but if I can go back and do it again, I'd say, don't wait, just do it. Just like get out there, buy some real estate. Um, and don't worry if you don't know everything, like, like do your due diligence. I'm not, I'm not, this is not a justification to just gamble. Right. But like, you're not going to know everything. Like it's not possible. There's always going to be something else you can learn. And I've met people that are 70 years old and have been going to real estate networking events since they were in their twenties and have never bought real estate because they're still trying to learn. I got to learn more. I got to go to this course. They've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on education and that's not necessary. There's something wrong with education. I spend a lot of money on education, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fact, but you know why I can afford to do that? Cause I have a lot of real estate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Um, I guess kind of giving the listeners a kind of view of your portfolio today sure. and also your end goal kind of after that tying that in there. Yeah. I mean, I don't have an end goal. I just yeah. like real estate. So, I mean, my goal was to first replace my income so I could live without working. I did that a long time ago. And, uh, um, and so the end goal is just, you know, I, I want to help people that that's like my passions now are around helping people invest in real estate education. You know, that's why I do my podcasts. Um, both the real estate one and the non-real estate one are really about helping people live the best possible version of their life that they can. Um, so that's the end goal is just keep, keep doing that. Um, but the, uh, the portfolio now, I mean, we have around 270 apartments uh, and single family houses, um, primarily um, in joint ventures. So, you know, we own a big chunk of it. See, when you get into the syndication world, you have these um, real estate investors that, uh, you know, maybe they put deals together, but there's a huge group of people and then they raise a whole bunch of money. And so, you know, you might have a guy say, I have a thousand units, but they own like 1% of a thousand units. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's a strategy. But, um, I feel that, you know, for me, I'd rather have a bigger chunk. So my average ownership's around a third, um, maybe, maybe a little bit under like 30 to 35%, somewhere in that range, um, of those units. And then I have two office buildings, uh, as the strip mall that I'm about yeah. to buy. And then I have another strip mall up in uh, Michigan as well. Uh, and, um, you know, that's about it for real estate. Um, but I guess that's a few dollars worth of real estate. <laughs> and we have some more. I mean, we're, our, my goal this year is to buy, borrow $10 million. I don't care what I buy with it. I just want to borrow $10 million. Um, that's because, and that's a weird way to look at it, but that's how I look at it. Yeah. Um, I figure banks make sure they only loan me money on stuff that works i mean that's like actually the reality so as long as the bank will loan me the money it's not so bad um now don't don't get me wrong that's not a justification <laughs> like for a not doing strategy. your due diligence but but right now money is super cheap you can borrow money for three and a half percent or less right um 
that's really cheap. It's never been that cheap for commercial debt ever. Like some people borrow in the twos for commercial debt now, depending on what kind of asset class they're looking at and what kind of debt they're getting. Um, inflation came out yesterday, 5.1% annualized. This has never happened before. Inflation is higher than the cost of borrowing money. So based on that, I could literally borrow, borrow $10 million and buy $10 million worth of toilet paper, wait a year, sell it, and come out ahead because they're paying me to borrow money. They're literally loaning me money at a rate that's lower than the rate of inflation. It's never happened before, so I want to borrow as much as I can. $10 million is a stretch goal. I don't know if I'll make it, but we have $8 million worth of real estate under contract right now. Um, so that'll be $6 million in debt right there. And we've already bought um, 100 units this year. Um, and uh, that's another few million in debt. So if everything plays out the way it is, we're going to hit our $10 million new debt goal for the year. And uh, we're going to have the benefit of appreciation, but we're also going to have the benefit of the spread between inflation and our cost of funds. Um, and I feel like that's like a, a free gift from from the banks, from, from yeah, the, the economy, from the Federal Reserve for super artificially suppressing interest rates um, of like a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for mm. 20 or 30 years, depending on the financing terms we get. And uh, I, uh, I, don't see, I don't see why you wouldn't want to borrow as much money. I mean, I, Dave Ramsey is probably mad at me for saying it. So, Dave, I'm sorry, man. Like, <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> borrow money. It's the way to wealth. And it really is. I mean, that's... I mean, there's four ways you make money in real estate. That's it. There's four. It's not 50. There's four. I know people are like, well, what about wholesaling? What about flipping? Well, yeah, but it's all the same thing. At the end of the day, you make money in real estate by cash flow, appreciation, amortization, which is debt pay down, and the tax advantages. And that's it. There's no other way to make money. Like flipping is just a way to force appreciation, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that flipping, wholesaling, that's appreciation. That's a, a buying it right. I mean, that's just buying below market value. That's that's cool, but but it, but you don't make money that way. You just you're just getting a deal, right? Like that, that's cool. I mean, but then you're then you're gonna flip that contract, and you've got appreciation by by because of your knowledge. Um, but uh, one of the four is amortization gains. That's debt pay down. Someone else paying your mortgage. So. I mean, if you're not borrowing, I mean, you're, you're throwing away a quarter of your possible returns and the easiest one to control because it stays the same. And the great part about debt is, man, if you borrow, it's the best hedge against inflation. If inflation keeps going up, you're going to pay it back with even cheaper dollars, right? If inflation goes to 10% or 20% or the value of the dollar cuts in half, you still owe the same amount of dollars. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I want to borrow a whole bunch of money and then hope inflation goes up like crazy. And the way they're spending... Could happen. Could happen. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about the tax benefits? I know you have yeah. some experience with uh, depreciation sure. and tax savings in that sense with cost segregations. Yeah, so, sure. So, yeah. I mean, the, the short version is um, since 2017, when I started buying multifamily, I paid $0 in federal tax. Zero. I make money, but my tax returns show I lose money every single year, and a lot. Um, when a President Trump... Uh, had his tax returns revealed and people were mad that he paid $750 in tax and he's a billionaire whether he is or not we don't know but because we haven't seen his financials but we know that he paid $750 in tax I thought everyone else is like this is outrageous he should have paid way more and I'm like why did he pay that much that's my answer right he's a like, filing like, fee. like what kind of what kind of real estate investor pays tax because the truth is if you know how to 
um, follow the rules. And I'm not, I'm not saying commit tax fraud. What I'm saying is like, um, there's a rich dad uh, tax advisor, Tom Wheelwright. Have you guys read his book, uh, Tax Free Wealth? Get this book, read it. Tax Free Wealth by Tom Wheelwright. So Tom Wheelwright says, if you want to change your tax, change your facts, right? He said, he points out that um, the tax code is not designed to raise money. The tax code is designed to manipulate behavior. Um, I'm not an accountant. I'm not a CPA. I'm not giving like tax advice. But uh, if you think about it, it, it makes sense, right? If they just wanted to raise money, they would just print more money. They do that anyway. They can print as much money as they want. They don't need to take Tim's money to get more money. They just print as much money as they want. The only reason to take your money is to convince you to do something differently, right? So they encourage you to buy real estate and get tax write-offs. Just like they encourage you to get married so you can get a homestead credit, right? Or or have children so you can get an you know a children tax child tax care credit, right? Stuff like that. Um, they're trying to encourage certain behaviors by the tax code, penalize certain behaviors by taxing them more heavily. So like if you run a coal plant, you pay a whole bunch of extra tax because they want to have less people producing carbon. That's a carbon tax. Um, and, that, and that's why like the environmentalists are like, we need, to, we need carbon taxes, right? Because they, they, don't, they don't want carbon taxes to raise money. They want carbon taxes to cut down on carbon production, right? Um, that's how the whole tax code is actually set up. So one of the things the federal government wants us to do is to provide high quality, low cost, affordable housing to people that need it. So they encourage us. So they create things like tax credits for developing new low income housing credits, right? But they also have this thing called cost segregation, which is about depreciation. So the short version of depreciation, in case you need a definition for your audience, is that, um, that the IRS has determined that buildings go down in, time, in value over time, that they lose value because they're wearing out. Now, we all know that, that real estate goes up, right? I mean, it, it tends to go up. Um, but, but it does make sense, right? If you build a building, it's only going to last so long unless you put money back into it. So the IRS says that residential property lasts 27 and a half years. Now, we all know that's a made-up number. Like, if you build a house today, it's probably going to be around longer than 27 and a half years. I mean, there are houses that are 100 years old, for crying out loud, all over the place, right? But the IRS says, hey, it's worth 27 and a half years, and then it's worth nothing, right? That's, that's their determination. So what it is is they say if you buy a piece of real estate, uh, say just to make the math really easy, let's say you buy a $120,000 house, uh, $20,000 is the value of the land in my made-up hypothetical. The house is worth $100,000. They say, you can take 27 and a half, you take 100,000 divided by, that was actually terrible math because it's not easy to do this math, but, <laughs> but you take um, $100,000, you divide it by 27 and a half, and each year you can write off one twenty-seven and a half-fifth of, of $100,000, which is about $4,000 a year. Let's just say it's around there, right? So if I make $4,000 in income on that property after all of my expenses, right, interest expense plus, you know, management expenses, whatever, and I get a $4,000 depreciation allowance, that $4,000 depreciation allowance is counted as a non-cash loss. So I didn't lose any cash, but the IRS says I lost money. They, they, they let me write that off. And that's one of the ways they encourage people to buy rental properties. Um, they want people to invest in other businesses as well, like commercial properties, but they don't want it as much. And we know that because they say commercial properties depreciate over 40 years instead of 27 and a half. They're like, we want to encourage it, but we want to more encourage apartments and houses, right? 
Um, and so uh, that's essentially what depreciation is. What happened in 2017 is the Trump tax code came out. The Trump tax code said any depreciation that you're allowed that's um, property that would depreciate under 15 years or less can be taken in the first year. Um, I'm not a tax expert at all, but certain property has different depreciation, much like commercials, 40 years, residentials, 27 and a half. Uh, parking lots are 15-year property. Don't know why, but the IRS says if you put in a parking lot, you can take that as a write-off over 15 years. So if I go build a new parking lot, I don't get to write off the whole thing the first year. I write off one fifteenth of it the first year. So if it's a $15,000 parking lot, I get a $1,000 write-off every year for 15 years. Well, under the new tax code, they said for a period of time starting in October 1 of 2027 and continuing until, I think, September 30 of 2024, you can take 100% of anything that's 15-year property or less, so three, five, and seven-year property as well, in the first year as a write-off. So this is where tax gets a little complicated, but a cost segregation study, which is when you have an engineer come in and look at your property, can determine what the value of your parking lot is. So when I buy an apartment complex, I hire an engineer, the engineer comes down and he says, you know, you paid $2 million for this apartment complex and it has $100,000 worth of parking lots and, and only $1.9 million worth of other stuff. And, you know, and they'll say the land's worth 200000 and the building's worth, you know, 700000 and the cabinets are worth 200,000, and they break it all into these categories, and then I can go to the IRS and say, look, engineer told me this is what it's worth, and that means I can write off the cabinets and the floors and the parking lots and, uh, in the first year, because that's what they're, they're encouraging us to invest. It's another incentive to invest in, in that type of asset. And uh, we do that. We do a cost segregation study, and we're seeing about 25 to 30% of our purchase price as a first year write-off. That becomes very, very significant when you have to put 20% down. So you buy a $2 million building, you put $400,000 down, and you get, let's call it $500,000 in write-offs. So a bigger write-off than you actually have. So if you made uh, $500,000 that year, you could put $400,000 down on an apartment complex, put $100,000 in your savings account, right, and, and spend it for whatever you want and not pay tax on any of it. No, there's, there's downsides because you have a lower basis, so you get lower depreciation moving forward. But you know, the thing with taxes, the longer you push it out, the better. And if you do this long enough, and then you use things like 1031 exchanges, which allow you to trade one property for another without having a taxable event, you can push that tax obligation out pretty much forever. Uh, the goal is to push your taxes out forever and then die. Because once you die, your heirs don't pay tax either because yeah. you get a stepped-up basis and you get to start over. That's awesome. So that's my strategy. Now, it won't work forever because they're phasing out the bonus depreciation, but the cost segregations are still worth doing on any property that's like a half a million dollars or more because um, it costs money to have an engineer come out uh, and do that study. But if you, if you do the study, you're going to get a huge tax benefit. I mean, obviously, it's only worth it if you're going to keep the property for more than a few years. You don't want to do it if you're going to sell next year. It doesn't work for that kind of stuff. Um, but if people have questions about that, they can certainly reach out to me. Um, we actually have a couple of uh, websites set up to help people learn about cost segregations now. We've done a whole episode on our show about it. So, Awesome. And just kind of diving into that, would you um, uh, tell the listeners what 
you know, kind of resources and different podcasts they can... Sure. Uh, so for cost segregations in general, yeah. um, I really like this company. It's called Core Solutions Group out of Michigan. Um, I'm sure they have a website, but we actually made a website called oldfashionedtaxsavings.com. So oldfashionedtaxsavings.com, they can just go there and they can get, actually, they'll, if they go there, they can get a free benefit analysis and so they can put in the information about their property and somebody from Core will call them directly and uh, tell them how much they're going to save and what it's going to cost. It won't be exactly accurate because they have to send the engineer out to get the final report done, but it will be like, we think you're going to save about this much in tax, and it'll cost you about this much to do it. And so it's a really easy decision for people. So if you buy real estate, go to oldfashionedtaxsavings.com. It's like the first thing you should do right after you buy it. Go find out if you can save some more money. Uh, or even do it before. You can just give them the information ahead of time, and they can give you a projection of what it'll be. Um, so that's, you know, for that, that's where I would go. Obviously, I like my podcast, the best of all podcasts, even better than yours. Uh, and I have two of them. One's Old Fashioned Real Estate. Uh, and that show, we just drink bourbon old fashions. Like, we get drunk and talk about real estate. Yeah. That's best on YouTube because it's more fun if you can see us getting drunk. But we're on all the podcasting apps and stuff, too. And then uh, for other real estate podcasts, I mean, there's so many of them. So many. Yours is actually very good. I mean, I, I've really been enjoying it. Thank you. Um, and so people should continue to watch this one. But I mean, you've got all the big name ones like Bigger Pockets and stuff like that. Um, but you know, there's so many like good ones. It's just you can find a real estate podcast that specializes in uh, senior living developments or uh, raising money. I mean, there's the Capital Raiser show is really good. Um, there's the uh, Whitney Sewell has a show that's all about real estate syndication. I've been on his show. Um, that one he does every single day. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. yeah, every single day. We, I just, think... we just booked him yesterday. Oh, cool. He's yeah. a great guy. You'll like him on the show. You'll, you'll really enjoy him. He's a good guest. Um, and a good, I mean, he's just a really good guy. I don't know how he does a show every day. I mean, it's insane to me. <laughs> That's it's so much work. Having, doing two shows, and, and we only release one of them once every other week and yeah. once one, one a week. So I'm doing like six shows a month. That's a lot of shows for me. So doing one every single day, 30 a month, it's insane. Um, but yeah, so you guys will like having him on the show. Uh, his show's really good. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there's so many of them. Like, yeah. you, could, you could find a show about anything, really. Vinny Chopra's got a pretty good show, too. I don't know if you've seen his. I've been on two out of his four shows. That's another guy that does way too much stuff. Four shows. Who has four shows? And then when I was on his show last time, he said to me, you know, I really like your mindset. Maybe we should do a Mindset Monday show with Jeff and Vinny. And I'm like, Vinny, like, you already have four shows. Like, I'm not going to do it. I have two shows. You have four shows. That's enough between the two of us. My other show, by the way, is a not a real estate show, but it's called Last Life Ever. Yeah. And it's just about, like I said, living the best version of your life that you can. So it's awesome. I like it. It's awesome. Um, and uh, kind of a, um, one of the last questions for you. It's a new question that we're asked. But what is a book that um, you give more than any other book? That I give? Yeah, if yeah. gift. Gift, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. Um, I mean, I give away Rich Dad Poor Dad all the time, so yeah. that's the clear winner on that. But actually, that tax-free wealth book, I've given that away a couple times recently, too, the um, Tom Wheelwright one. Because I keep running into this guy, so I keep getting signed copies of his book, so I keep giving him away. and Because uh, he's, like, a good guy, but I don't need, like, three copies of his book signed because they're not, like, it's not like they're worth a lot, you know. Um, but Rich Dad Poor Dad, I give away the most. Um, the book I recommend the most um, recently, actually, is... Uh, is Total Recall by Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
I don't give it away because I only have it on Audible, but it's a, it's a great book. People should read that. It's a real estate book, too. People don't realize that. That's how he made his money. I mean, really? he made money acting. Don't, I mean, I don't mean to say that, but his first million, he made it in apartments. Wow, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, most wow. people don't. And that's a mindset book more than a real estate book, actually. Um, this guy, like, he... Um, he he's in, he's 15 years old and he doesn't speak English and one of his friends has a magazine like a weightlifting magazine and um, he sees this guy on the cover that's really muscular looking with a hot blonde chick and he says uh, who's that and the guy goes oh that's Mr. Universe and he goes I will be Mr. Universe <laughs> he's 15 he's never lived in a weight in his life he's a scrawny little kid in like the hill country of Austria doesn't speak English and literally four years er, Later, he becomes the youngest Mr. Universe ever because he said to himself, I will be Mr. Universe. And then he proceeds to win the thing seven times. No one's ever won it more than three besides him, right? And, uh, and then he says, they say to him after he wins his first one, well, what's, what, are you, you know, what, what are your goals now that you're Mr. Universe? And he says, I will be the biggest movie star in America. I will be the first movie star ever to be paid a million dollars for a single movie. He doesn't speak English. He's saying this in like, you know, whatever language he speaks, Austrian or... German or something, you know, one of those, right? And uh, I guess there's no Austrian language, so it's got to be like German or French or something. Based on his accent, I'm going to go German. But anyway, so he says that to them, and um, then he does it. It's crazy, right? I mean, that's an insane amount of mindset. And it's like, and I mean, he got he gets over to California and he's doing weightlifting stuff in like Gold's Gym or whatever. Oh yeah, you know, and uh, and then uh, he uh, he gets his little movie break, but he doesn't make any money on it. The the lifting movie. Right, they won some awards and stuff. Pump and Iron, yeah, yep. yeah, Pump and Iron. I mean, it was a good movie, but I mean, he didn't make any money because he wasn't famous and it was a low budget movie. And uh, anyway, he, he's doing that, and he's like, "Well, I got to make money," so he starts like a construction company, hires people that don't speak English to do construction work, and he goes and sells the jobs, right? And he makes this money doing this construction company. Takes the money from that, he starts a mail order business where he sells like pamphlets right and then while he's doing that he takes the money from all this stuff and he buys himself an apartment complex in freaking LA wow. right and uh, boom millionaire then he becomes a movie star and you know how he becomes a movie star he throws really big parties for rich Hollywood people at his apartment complex <laughs> I remember hearing his uh, schedule throughout the day he went to go work out in the morning from like 7 to 8 then he'd do construction all day yeah. and then come back to the gym and work out again yeah, I mean, it, but, it, but it's all about, like, refusing, talking about taking full responsibility for your situation, yeah. right? But it's also about refusing to not get what you want, just saying, this is what I'm going to do, and then going to do it. I mean, and it applies to everything. Like, the guy, like, literally didn't speak English, and he's a foreigner, and he came here, and he married into the Kennedy family and became a Republican governor in California. Like, that doesn't happen. Like, who, what Kennedy gets to be a Republican governor, right, anywhere, yeah. let alone in California? Well, Jeff, we really appreciate you coming on today. And is there um, a place where our listeners can reach out to you if they have any questions? Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm everywhere. If they Google me, they'll find me. Yeah. But um, probably Instagram's best, at Jeffrey Holst on Instagram. Um, or in either of my Facebook groups. I've got the Old Fashioned Real Estate Group and Last Life Ever private group on Facebook. Those are really good places to reach out to me, too. Or my personal website, jeffreyholst.com. Or oldfashionedrealestate.com. Any of those. <laughs> Or oldfashionedtaxsavings.com. Well, there's no place to reach out to me there. That takes Uh, you over to the tax savings guys. Uh, Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it.